Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We'll be covering all of Chapter 5, so I'm not going to have you stand. The Lord would like to pray again, though. And Father, we do ask once again that you would anoint these lips of clay, let your word go out among these people and in my own heart and do the work that it needs to do in each individual life represented here. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Why is it that human beings have never been able to build a society that is all that we would like it to be? Why are harmony and happiness so difficult to attain? And so fleeting on the occasions we think that we have managed to find them. Why do leaders who appear to promise so much often let us down? Why do conflict, suffering, injustice, disappointment, anxiety, and fear continue so powerfully in human lives and societies? We have never been able to build communities that are completely secure, prosperous, joyful, and peaceful. The simple but true answer is that we are not good, wise, or strong enough. Neither education nor regulation has ever been able to make us good enough to live completely, happily together. And so it follows that the Bible's message about the kingdom of God is enormously important to us. God has promised to do what humans lack the goodness, wisdom, and power to accomplish. Only the kingdom of God guarantees the righteousness that we humans consistently fail to exhibit, the peace that we find so elusive, and the joy that is always transitory. In the Old Testament history of the people of Israel, the kingdom of David was the kingdom of God. His was not the full or the perfect expression of God's kingdom. That only came into the world with Jesus Christ and will only culminate when he finally returns. Nonetheless, the surprising and often perplexing story of David's journey from Bethlehem, where he was anointed, to Jerusalem, where the Lord will establish him as king over the people, teaches us a great deal about the kingdom of God. Through those years, David maintained his righteousness and faithfulness by refusing to take the throne of Saul by violence. As Saul did everything in his power to destroy David, David suffered. But it could be said of him, as it was later said of Jesus in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Verse 1, please. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. 
Also in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Verse 1 says, Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. This, of course, was not literally what happened. Otherwise, several million visitors would have overran Hebron. In verse 3, we will learn that the tribes came to David representatively. It was their elders who came. Now, why did they come? The short answer is they have finally came to their senses. The attempt to set up a king other than David had been foolish from the very beginning. Likewise, when people come to God's king today, they recognize that they too have come to their senses. Previous attempts to live without Christ as their Lord have been foolish. They should have known better. Remember the prodigal son? There he was standing ankle deep in pig slop when it was said of him. And coming to his senses, his thoughts turned back to home and to a father that loved him. It's interesting that the last time all the elders of Israel appeared together in this story was many years previously when all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah to demand that he appoint for them a king. Now the qualifications for Israel's king was written in the law of Moses. And the first and the most important requirement was that he had to be chosen by the Lord. And the people knew that Samuel had anointed David some 20 years before and that it was God's will that David was the one to ascend to the throne. The nation needed a shepherd and David was that shepherd. Saul had been the people's king, but he was not the Lord's first choice. For God had given him a, as a judgment against Israel because they wanted to be just like all of the other nations. Now David's anointing here comes in three phases. The first time David was anointed was in 1 Samuel 16 when he was anointed before his family. David's brothers looked at their younger sibling and saw Samuel pour the oil from the horn upon his head. That's not the way it works, they may have thought. It's supposed to be the oldest, or the strongest, or the most handsome who is anointed, not David, the shepherd boy. His brothers questioned him, even chastised him, until they saw him kill Goliath. David was anointed again in 2 Samuel 2.4 before his tribe, the men of Judah. For seven and one half years, he didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't kill Saul when he had the opportunity. He didn't kill Ishbosheth. He didn't even want to see Abner killed. Instead, he had faith in God and plugged away day after month after year. I'm sure his advisors were saying, take control of the situation, David. But David wouldn't do it. He simply and faithfully served his tribe and had faith that God would do what was right in the proper season. Likewise, not only your family, but also your peers will sense the Lord is doing something in and through you, as you are faithful with whatever task that God places before you. 
Despise not the day of small beginnings, Zechariah declares. Now, you might not be at the full orb of what you desire to be or to do, but if you are faithful to do what is before you, regardless of how big or small it may seem to be, God will exalt you at the proper time. Now, the third time David is anointed is here in chapter 5, when he is anointed before the entire nation. Before his family, David exhibited humility and hope. Before his tribe, David was faithful. And before the nation, David proved his love. How? We read in verse 1 that all the tribes of Israel came to David. Now, when did these tribes come? After Saul had died, after Abner had died, and after all of his enemies were removed from the scene, and after they had watched David mourn for all of them. David was anointed when the people saw him as a man of grace, of mercy, and of love. Verse 4, please. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Throughout Scripture, the age of 30 seems to be significant. Henry David Thoreau said, You ripen until you are 30, and then after 30, you begin to rot. Now, it is intriguing that Joseph began his reign as prime minister of Egypt when he was 30. The Levitical priests began their ministry in Israel when they reached the age of 30. And, of course, our Lord Jesus began his public ministry, once again, at the age of 30. Personally, I can't wait until I'm 30 to see what the Lord is going to do in my life. But once again, keep in mind that for every two and a half years that David ruled, he has spent one year in preparation. Now, David wisely chose as his capital, the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. It was on the border of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe, and the border of Judah, which was, of course, David's tribe. This way, nobody could accuse David of playing favorites and setting up the new capital. David knew the city of Jerusalem was strategic. It was geographically strategic because it was surrounded on three sides by a valley, making it a very hard place to attack. It was also politically strategic because it straddled the boundary line between Judah and Benjamin, making it impossible for any one tribe to claim it. It was also historically significant, dating back to the days of the patriarchs. Verse 6, please. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. We see here that trash-talking is nothing new. They said, David, even the blind and the lame are enough to keep you out. The Living Bible says, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I read in one commentary that this was not only a taunt, but it was also a tactic. For the Jebusites would place their blind and their lame on top of the city walls as an alarm system. You see, if the enemy attempted to enter the city, the finely tuned ears of the blind would hear them, and the lame, unable to run for safety, would simply scream for help, thereby alerting the city. Sounds a little despicable, but that's what they did. Now, Israel had never conquered the city of Jerusalem. A group of people called the Jebusites now occupied the city. 
when the nation of Israel went to occupy the land, they kicked out several groups of people. We read that in the book of Joshua. Basically, if your name ended with an ite, they kicked you out. They kicked out the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Cellulites, and even the Budlites. This is also the first time, don't write that in your notes, The Zion is mentioned in the Bible. Now, Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and it eventually refers to the Temple Mount area. Now, I find it appropriate that the word Zion can be translated either parched place or sunny spot. It all depends on one's perspective. Either way, it's a hot spot, just as it is today. Verse 8. Now, David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now, the blind and the lame there is probably a derogatory reference by David to the Jebusites, who had used that same expression in their defiance against him. David's hatred was not a matter of holding a prejudice against disabled people, but rather the hostility of the king toward those who defied his reign. They were, to use their own words, blind and lame in this matter. Now, the fact that Jerusalem was surrounded by on valleys by three sides and a mountain on the fourth, made David's challenge seem impossible. Yet, with no water source on the inside, David knew that because the Jebusites couldn't survive without water, there had to be a camouflaged water shaft somewhere. Now, First Chronicles 11 tells us that the name of the man who found the shaft was none other than Joab. As we have seen, Joab was not the most upstanding man. The one thing he did do, he found a way to get into the city. Now, for someone like me who is a little claustrophobic, this is impressive. Let me explain. They have found what they believe to be that water shaft. It's 75 feet long and extremely narrow. So imagine this very tight stone tunnel that you have to crawl your way through. And so Joab making his way through all that was probably like going through a four-hour MRI. Now, I'm not talking about that sissified open MRI. I'm talking about the coffin MRI. You know the one. Where they put Vaseline on your sides and they squeeze you into it and have the audacity to ask you if you're okay. Anyway, enough about my issues. The point is that Joab did something when the need arose. That's a good example for all of us this morning. Someone once compared the church to a football game, where you have 22 men on the field who are in desperate need of rest, being watched by 60,000 fans who are in desperate need of exercise. Verse 10 says, So David went on and grew great, or literally in the Hebrew text, David went going and growing. I like that. Lord, let that be me. Help me to keep going and help me to keep growing. The Lord will take you as far as you want to go, but not one step further. David was a man after God's heart. He wanted more of him. He wanted to be closer to him. He wanted to gain more knowledge about him. 
What about us? Was there ever a time in our walk when we were closer to the Lord than we are right now? When we felt His presence to a greater degree? When we were drawn to Him in greater intimacy? If so, I have great news for us. Right here, right now, we can say, Lord, I am here. I've been bogged down, but here I am. Take me deeper. Take me further. I want to keep going, and I want to keep growing. And I guarantee you, he will hear that prayer. David understood that God was blessing his kingdom for his people's sake. In other words, David said, God has blessed me to be a blessing. What a key understanding this is. I'm convinced God is looking for people to bless who want to be blessed for one purpose, that they might be a blessing to others. Lord, make me a servant, we say. But the true test of servanthood is very simple. How do we respond when people actually treat us like servants? When they order us around, never say thanks, and don't even notice what we do. If we get offended and if we get upset, then we're not yet truly servants in the biblical sense. May we be like like David, who understood that blessing is bestowed upon us in order that we might be a blessing to others. Verse 11. And Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David, and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Iphar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet, more or less. This is the problem of having too many wives. I think David is running out of names here, just starting to put sounds together at this point. However, the greatness of David's kingdom needs to be qualified. The frank and candid honesty of the Bible is sometimes astonishing to me. Here at the very point where we have been shown the greatness of David, we are given indications of weaknesses that will one day undermine David's entire kingdom. And so the first words of verse 13 are indeed alarming. And David took. What David took as to the disturbing nature of this report. He took more concubines and more wives. Of course, like all kings, you had to have considerable wealth to have a lot of wives, as wives can be expensive. Of course, they still are today, but that's another sermon. David is a godly man, but he has real flaws. Not only does he struggle with lying, but with a tendency to be attracted to many different women. Here he does what is forbidden in Deuteronomy 17 by gathering numerous wives and concubines. And although God will continue to use David, the consequences of these concubines and multiple wives will eventually bring about difficulty and heartbreak, as we will see as we make our way through the book. And once again, the narrator makes no explicit explicit judgment concerning this. 
But the requirement of Deuteronomy 17 cannot be forgotten. Kings were not to multiply wives. Already we're beginning to see that even great David will fail to be everything that God's king should be. Now maybe David thought, I'm not really multiplying wives. I'm just sort of adding them one at a time. But here's the danger we're trying to be wise in our own eyes when it comes to matters of disobedience. Later on, we're going to read that not only did David take multiple wives, he eventually crosses the line and takes another man's wife in Uriah the Hittite. So David found it easy, once he built up a tolerance in the area of women, to take the next step in adultery. Always remember that when we start down a path of disobedience, very often we will end up doing things we never thought possible. Verse 17. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. The five Philistine forced cities have joined forces and attacked David. Now when did they do this? Right after he had gained a great victory in conquering Jerusalem. This is often what happens. It was after Abraham built an altar to the Lord that there was strife among his and Lot's herdsmen. It was after Joseph had a dream that God gave him revelation that his brothers turned against him. It was after Elijah called down fire from heaven, there was a great victory on Mount Carmel that Jezebel threatened to take his life. Have you ever noticed that every single time God does something wonderful in your life, or he does something to expand your influence for the kingdom, that this also happens? And so when God asks you to take a step of faith and you do it, you will find that there is always considerable warfare that comes along with the new territory. Note and remember that. Following victory, there will usually come an attack from the enemy. Whenever you take Jerusalem, capture new territory, step out in ministry, or just decide to be more serious about your faith, the enemy will eventually show up. I like this in verse 17. David didn't immediately go up to fight. He didn't go out to battle. Instead, he went down to the stronghold. Now, this speaks to me of humility. He didn't stand up to the Philistines that day. Instead, he went down before God to pray. Now, Rephim means valley of the giants. And although David was a giant killer, he didn't say to himself, I've already killed the biggest giant of them all. This will be no problem. No. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Shall I go up and fight? Now, we can think that such things are no-brainers, but David didn't take a step here without proper recognition of God. God says in verse 19, I will doubtless deliver them. I like the word doubtless or certainly whenever it pertains to God. I have it underlined in my Bible. You should underline it also. You don't have to. But it would be a great mistake to live in disobedience to your pastor. 
We'll be handing out the WWBD What Would Bill Do bracelets immediately following the service this morning. Verse 20. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Baal Perazim means breach of waters or breakthrough. The Lord has given me this breakthrough, David declared. It wasn't my strategy. It wasn't my ability. It wasn't my energy. I prayed to the Lord, and he secured the victory for me. But look at verse 21. It says, the Philistines left their images there. This is a surefire way to know that you have chosen the wrong God in life. If you have to carry your God to the place of battle, and at the end of the battle you have to carry it back home, you may want to look for another deity in life. I mean, wouldn't that be humiliating? And think of the poor God there lying in the mud waiting for the bus, as it were. Now, they could have said, we have the true God here in Israel. We don't need some chubby little Buddha God where you rub his belly for good luck. As a side note, one of the tenets of the Buddha was that his followers were to practice self-denial. And yet, if you look at the statues of Buddha with his ever-present protruding belly, it looks to me like he sort of lived at the Olive Garden. I don't get it. These are the things that keep me up at night. In Deuteronomy 7, God declared that the images of the enemies were to be burned. In Deuteronomy 17, God declared that kings were not to gather to themselves multiple wives. And although David had a hard time with Deuteronomy 17, he nails Deuteronomy 7. I would urge us this morning to do the same. My advice to you is, any images that are of the enemy, be they books, magazines, or videos, should not be destroyed, not controlled, not saved, not sold, but destroyed. I don't know about you, but I don't want no part of my old life to hang around trying to tempt me. Verse 22, please. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching on the top of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Verse 22 says, once again, the Philistines have decided to attack. And just like that, I remind us that the Christian life will be a battle until the day that we cross over into the celestial city. We have a real enemy who is not going to give up. And even though we may experience victory from the enemy, know this. It does not insulate us from future attack. Jesus prayed this for us in John 17. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus prayed that God would not remove us from the world, but protect us while we are still in the world. In other words, Jesus prayed that we wouldn't be isolated, but insulated. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But it doesn't say he won't eventually come back, because he will. If you remember the story of Job, 
God asked Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan basically said, yeah, I know him. And quite frankly, I'm not all that impressed. You see, I've got a theory on the wealth of Job. I think he only serves you for what you give him. And so if you let me take everything from him but his wife, he can keep her. She was the one thing that Satan didn't want, which doesn't say a whole lot about the goodness of Job's constitution in life. But I think that shows us that no matter how righteously we live, there will always be battles. Also in verse 24, the rabbis taught the moving of the mulberry trees or the landing of angels. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds cool. As we close, David had already beaten the same people in the same place. But David was a man who sought a fresh word from the Lord for each and every situation. He didn't assume anything. How I want to be more like him in that area. Earlier, David went right into the valley and confronted the enemy head to head. Here, he's in the same valley, facing the same enemy, but the Lord gave him a different strategy. And in this, it's as if God says to us, forget about yesterday's strategy. It was good for then, but not for today. Stay in constant touch with me. Because it's very tempting to think that the longer that we walk with the Lord, that we somehow have him completely figured out. And so we think, well, the last time I got victory in this area, the Lord did it this way. And so now that means somehow that he's handcuffed to do it that way every single time. Now this is one of the exciting things about walking in the Spirit, and that our lives don't have to become static and dull, but they can always have a sense of adventure about them. And Lord, that is what we want. We want to walk in your ways, Father. And I don't know where anyone in this room is. Only you know that, Father. I pray you would just reveal yourself to everyone here, draw them to you, and give us a fresh desire to know you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me.